This is the Pluck Chicken Podcast. Today we resume our study of the gospel according to St. John, and uh, you'll recall that last time we got together, we had uh, digested uh, the entire uh, episode of Jesus with a Samaritan woman at the well of Jacob. And now we come uh, in verse 43 of chapter 4 to a, a little transitional notice, and these occur every once in a while in the gospel according to St. John. And we actually have a temporal notice here, which is very interesting. I wonder if Pastor Oakery would be willing to read this, uh, really just 43 through 45, get that out on the floor so we can discuss it a little bit. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. I think the, the interesting notice here is in verse 44, uh, that Jesus himself had borne witness that a prophet uh, does not have honor in his own country. The question really is, what is his own country? Uh, right? What's the, what's the reference at this point in time? Well, it seems pretty clear that Galilee is front and center, at least in the text. Why then would he depart from... So he's, he's left Jerusalem, right? He's left Judea. Right gone to gone to, into Samaritan territory on his way to Galilee specifically Cana ultimately that's where he's headed right so we find that out a little bit later on right yeah but we so, but we don't get a rejection in Galilee no which and is then, right so i'm just saying on the surface you're just going to read that and say oh it's Galilee but then the the facts don't quite add up to that right right so what is his own country i i think that's that's the big thing we should you know, figure out here. I would say Cana. This is where he has this first miracle. His mother is heavily involved in the wedding. He's going to do this second sign in Cana. This is his hometown. This is where, uh, as I said earlier, he, he went to this wedding. This was his family. His, his mother knew this family. This has got to be his hometown, and as he's headed in this direction, he's making it very clear a, a prophet has no honor here. That's an interesting theory, um, and and it may you know maybe we should test our different theories uh, against what the text says. And, What's yours? Well, my my theory is that this is actually Judea, that his own territory. That when he speaks about his you know early on, he he. Uh, in the prologue, it says he came into his own and his own did not receive him. So we have much the same language. And he's done these miracles, right? He, he had cleansed the temple in Judea. That caused all sorts of consternation. But there are these sort of liminal episodes where he's crossing out of Judea into Galilee, out of Galilee into Judea. And actually, the first two signs take place in this border, in this liminal area, which I think is just very interesting. My argument, actually, and of course, I, you know, I'm, I'm open to persuasion on this, but just the way the text reads, right? After the two days, he went out from there into Galilee. So now, so we say, okay, hmm, he went to Galilee. Why? Well, then we get an answer. For Jesus himself had borne witness that a prophet uh, does not have honor in his own hometown. The, the flow of that. The, the, the explanatory gar seems to justify a reading that would say Galilee is not the place where he would be rejected. But is it an indeed? 
I mean, it could be an indeed. You could read it as an indeed. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, what are your what are your thoughts? Because because he does find a wide reception in you know curiously in or in Galilee. What it brings to mind for me is it's it is made parenthetical in the uh, ESV here, oh. as if it's a a note. Regardless of that, certainly you read that, and it says he, that Jesus himself had testified, which to me means he's trying, I think, to recall the previous Gospels and saying, I am writing this Gospel in light of at least one other Gospel and this account where that comes up, which is, in fact, in Galilee. Right. And I think, taking your theory, because I like... I like to, to create harmony amongst our, our, our combating theories. Maybe saying, yes, he was rejected in his actual hometown, but he was also rejected from his true town, Jerusalem, and that Judea push. And I think maybe he's drawing that contrast. The rejection isn't just a geographic one, it's so to speak. I mean, obviously we are dealing with geography, but when, he's talk- when he talks about the rejection, it's more than a geographic one because, of course, there are people there that his own mother believed him eventually, mm-hmm. right? And so it's not just this flat rejection, but it is this overall rejection of the people who should have received him. And recognizing his hometown as the people who are like, you know who he is, but your familiarity has breed contempt, has bred contempt. And now I think he's making a, a, a deeper theological point, which I think John is apt to do in saying... Yeah, but he's also being rejected from his spiritual hometown of Jerusalem. Well, interesting. And and speaking in Pastor Kern's, uh, in behalf of the 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 uh, Pastor Kern's idea is verse forty eight. Uh, Jesus uh, therefore said to him, and this is a pros statement, so it's a, like against him. Unless y'all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Right. So it's a it's a harsh proclamation of law that seems to suggest that you know, they're ready to kind of take their hands and, and what do we call that motion? Dismissal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just wash your hands. Wash of your hands well, of Jesus, probably, yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah, that was exactly what I was thinking, actually, right before you went there, that the people of Cana, even though he's done this incredible miracle that everybody, no doubt, had already heard of, the, the changing the water into wine, that, that didn't just stay within the confines of that party. The whole town knew about this. So Jesus comes back here, and he says to them, I mean, this, like you just said, I mean, what a, what a rebuke in that unless you people see signs, I mean, that's really what it says, right? You people, mm-hmm. uh, or y'all even, unless you see signs, y'all won't believe. He's not just talking to the royal official. He's talking really to to everyone. And this seems to me to fit with what Jesus said before going into Cana, a prophet is without honor in his hometown. And this is why Jesus does this upcoming miracle where he says to the royal official, your son lives. This is actually kind of astounding to me because this is uh, the, the official is a, to me like not a prime accounting in John. Mm-hmm. It's not one that immediately comes to mind for me even. And yet here we have, and he's coming back to Cana, which you read that and you immediately think wedding at Cana, you think wine. And the rebuke he gives them is a is is the same rebuke he gives them over the bread. In, in chapter six. Right. So yep. he's building us up to that real rejection. 
and and why are they why are they what sign do they want from him? They want wine. They want more of that of what he did at the wedding, right? Well, either that or they or they or they're looking at the. There's a notice in verse 45 that they had seen all the things he had done in Jerusalem, right during the festival, and so yeah. you know I've often wondered um, here uh, in in connection with this if there's a a kind of I mean we know that there's this tension between. Uh, Galilean Jews and uh, and Judean Jews. There's there's absolutely a tension. Uh, so you've got this kind of synagogue or yeah synagogue centric Judaism up in in Galilee, and you've got this temple centric Judaism in in Judea. It's the and, elites versus the rednecks. Correct. Really. Yeah, in a sense, right? And it's almost like they're reading what Jesus did in the temple uh, that we read about in chapter two as finally a Galilean flipping. Uh, the Judean leaders off, but why would they want that more in their? Ter- they want them to go into the synagogues too and and take care of the 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 no good next there, or they just want them to kind of make a political stump speech, I, right? So, so right because ultimately this this culminates in them wanting to make him a king. You remember that, yeah, in, of course, in, in chapter six, and so they receive him. He does receive some honor, but the motive is wrong. There you go. So. He, he receives some honor, but he doesn't receive it as a prophet. Right. In verse 45, he comes to Galilee. The Galileans welcome him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So there's no doubt that, that what you said, Pastor Oakry, I mean, they, they, want to, they want the wine to flow. They want other things to happen. The motive is totally wrong, just like when Jesus goes in for the triumphal entry. But I think I think the feast is a tremendous insight because you're right. Like, what did he do at the feast? He didn't do any great miracle. He t- he did something for moral religious reasons, and they took it as a political statement. Is what seems to be unpacking here. Right. And they certainly don't understand it properly. Right. And, and but isn't that the point all along? Is that people will see the signs. But they won't understand what they're pointing to, and we and we we understand that, right? We need the whole. You you can't just have the signs; you have to have the Holy Spirit showing you what the sign is actually telling you. It's like trying to interpret street signs in Germany if you've never been there before, right? It's uh, you need something to kind of clue you in into what's going on. The Holy Spirit helps me a lot when I'm driving in Germany, getting around town. Good, good. Well, that's good. <laughs> good, good. good. <laughs> well, and the other thing that that Je- you know that Jesus points out, or that Jesus says in that statement in verse forty-eight, is all along every time Jesus does one of these things, uh, like turning the water into wine, cleansing the temple, uh, they are noted by John as a sign, a semeon. But here he says signs and wonders, terata. It's like the the wonderment portion of the sign is is all the all the focus and not the right. A sign always indicates something beyond itself. They're not they're they're seeing the wonders, but they're not seeing the wonders as signs per se, pointing to the realities of Jesus. Well, and just notice how well this transition shoehorns with the transition at the end of chapter two. Where they had seen, 
And now when he was at Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs of what he's doing. But Jesus, for his part, did not entrust himself to them. And that helps us to understand they're believing in his name, but they're not believing in they're not believing in what his name actually is for, right? They're believing in his name probably, as you say, as a political figure, a rebel king that they can ally themselves against, uh, against all the people they have grievances against, right? Uh, the Romans, the detached political party down in Judea. They're like, oh, we'll finally have a Galilean kingdom, right, with a worthy king because he's of the line and lineage of David, right? Right. And again, this is very interesting. This this buttresses, you know, if and I like how you've combined the two ideas of 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 rejection in both Galilee and Jerusalem. But but here it's clear. uh, I mean, the place of his rejection is actually Judea at the end of chapter two. Well, should we dive into this uh, healing? Yeah, yeah, let's let's do it. But let's just back up and let's just let's just say. Uh, maybe there are these sort of false political divisions and and kind of sophisticates against the rubes and the rubes against the sophisticates, all that sort of stuff. That's what meets the human eye. But at the bottom of it, whether in Galilee or in Judea, these are all Jesus's people. I mean, these are Jews. He's a Jew. And wherever he goes, he's not going to find the reception that that one would think that God's people who've had the promise for thousands of years would would give him. This is juxtaposed, not so much, you know, Judea versus Galilee, but, I mean, compare that to the reception that he received in Samaria and all the people who believed in him. Who and didn't want him to leave. Right. Stay a while. Teach yeah. some more. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting, right? And that's the distinction being made as well that the people who truly believe want to hear his word and the people who don't understand him correctly want him to do, want him to act. They like, we don't, we're done. The time for listening is over. Go do this. Go go do the good stuff. Didn't you just summarize Mary and Martha? Well, of course. Yeah. But I think our, our folks still get lost on this. Get busy doing. I mean, that's a, that's a, a motto that so many of our people live by. And clearly what Jesus is trying to bring us to is, Get busy listening to me. Like, let my word dwell in you richly. Which sets us up nicely for exactly what he's going to tell the royal official. Right, yeah, of course. Right. That's very interesting. And, um, and you know, I was thinking about this in light of, you know, a lot of the sermons that we listen to from the evangelical pastors. What's the thing that you're always supposed to be on the lookout for? Not what God tells you in his word. But the next big thing he's going to do in your life. Well, yeah. And in the meantime, while you wait on the next big thing that he's going to do in your life, you need to sign up for the dream team to set up church or break down. You need to be in a small group. You need to serve on the coffee team or serve the children some way, some somehow. Get get busy. It's almost like the Jews getting busy trying to usher in the Messianic age, right? So we continue. So he came again to Cana and Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. 
As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So as I mentioned earlier, this is such a bad translation, even in the beloved ESV, when it says your son will live. Is that what it says? It's present tense. It says that your son will live in the in the English text? Yes. Really? That's a terrible translation. No. Yeah. Is it your son lives? Your son lives. Your son's alive. Yeah. 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 And this is the word that the man takes and puts in his pocket and heads home believing the word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but then when he sees the word matched up with reality, right? And again, it isn't the miracle itself that brings him to that point of belief. It's when he realizes that it was the word of Jesus performative word that his belief is real right that it's like he and his whole household believed not from the moment that he found out that his son was better but from the second he realized that it was jesus word that had done it yeah there's a real word fixation without a doubt yep and this is why jesus said what he said you people won't believe unless you see the signs the point is believe the word you know, go back to that that statement in verse 48. Do you take that as a, is this man, this royal official, does he approach Jesus already in faith in his word? Because it is a, you know, unless y'all believe, unless y'all see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. Is this an aside to, to everybody else out there? And look, I'm just going to deal with this guy uh, on his own. His response would suggest I mean, I think you could take his response in a couple of different ways. Like, you know what? No matter what they need to have, I know you can do this. It's just come down. Or is he have a share in their unbelief over over the signs and wonders? There's so many things we, we don't know about this text, and all we can do is speculate. And, you know, I was thinking about that uh, just the other day as well, thinking about, you know, he's from... Capernaum, uh, a day's journey away. So, I mean, did he hear that Jesus was coming to Cana somehow and then makes his way there because of his ill son? Was he already there because there was business that he was tending to? You know, he hears the word about Jesus and approaches him and asks him to, to walk with him back home. We just don't know. Yeah, it's hard to say. I, I, I do feel like this is maybe John's version of the father with the demoniac son, he believes, help his unbelief. Mm -hmm. And I do like it because it happens time and time again with these very, with these specific miracles, because of course there's tons of people with need. Jesus gives a rebuke and the, the person in desperation just says, look, this, this is what is breaking me in pieces right now. Right. He's, and, and I think I, I always read it as like the father is just like, Okay, I get it. We're not up to snuff. I still need your help. And that is a prayer of faith, right? right? I'm, not, I, I'm not up to snuff, but I still need the help. I'm not worthy of your help. Please help me. And that is exactly what God has always done for us. It's a plea for help, but he's still desiring Jesus to come with him to Capernaum. 
But he doesn't, after Jesus says your son will, your son lives. Yeah, I'm talking about before. Yeah. Before he says that. He, the fact that he accepts that without at least the text giving us him wheedling or, or anything like that shows that he's like, well, I mean, I don't know. You know, I, it, the text doesn't tell us what he left right. thinking in his head. Right. Well, this bozo is no good, right? And it wouldn't surprise me if that thought was in his head. But again, God gives his goodness apart from our worthiness of it, even our part of our belief in it. He gives it, and then he is woken up through the word about how good this Jesus actually is. I mean, it's challenging, and it's a very brief text, and, and, and you're right. I mean, it's always dangerous to try to assume motives when the scripture doesn't give us any, but clearly this is a man who had some belief, um, but that his his belief wasn't brought to its fullness until after he recognized the word of Jesus was this healing word for his son. There, there's a pattern of this. It's not always the case, but there's a pattern of this where Jesus deals with somebody who is coming to him begging and precedes his gracious action with a rebuke. And you can think of the, for example, the, the Syrophoenician woman is, is another uh, good example of that. Um, and even his dealings with the with the woman at the well, right? I mean, here's this poor, miserable sinner. She needs nothing more than to know that she has a God who forgives sins. But it doesn't start out that way. It starts off with a rebuke. I think there's something in here uh, pastorally for, for us and our conduct with, with parishioners and, and probably for parishioners to understand as well that, that sometimes the, the right medicine isn't the one that you that you think the doctor ought to pull out of the drawer first. There might be something else that needs to be done first. You might need to have iodine poured on your wound before you can do anything else. And it stings. It, it doesn't feel good, but it's all part of the healing process. I very much agree with that. And, and really, I think you can line up a lot of this rebuke, but persistence. Um, the woman who touches his cloak it's uh, some uh, some rebuke but then is 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 fine i mean it's it's there an awful lot with his mother my hour has not yet come right right and then he graciously gives the gift what do you make of the guy uh, do you, do you believe that this that this official um john is very clear about this he is he is a royal official he's a basilikos in greek that means that he's in the court of of herod is he a proselyte? Is he a Jew? Is he? Uh, could he well be a, a Gentile? And this is again part of what Jesus's demonstration is. You know, here we. So if he said a prophet's not, you know, doesn't receive honor in his own hometown, and here we get a, a Gentile coming up out of Capernaum to see Jesus, and and he actually does receive Jesus. The the, the point isn't so much the geographic, but the whole part of, look, these Jews have the promise and they don't believe it. And here's a guy to whom the promise doesn't belong and he does believe it. But if he is in the court of Herod, um, which the English text certainly doesn't bear out, right? It just says he's an official, but you're like, who's the official for? He's a basilikos. Yeah. So so that means means he's a a kingly or a royal official. The only royalty here is Herod. Right, right. So, So that's an important insight, especially in light of what we had just previously talked about, about if people are seeing him as a political alternative to Herod, but then he graciously 
<laughs> brings grace to an agent of Herod, no matter what his race. That's certainly Jesus trying to proclaim, I'm not here to kick Herod out of his kingdom. I'm here to kick Satan out of oh, his kingdom. Oh, that's good. And and uh, to me, that's 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 power. He's bringing it to the people that they don't want him to bring it to. Why are you bringing? Why are, why are you bringing niceness? Why are you, why are you showing signs to a person who's not worthy? Which you horns well with a Samaritan woman, right? I'm not just I'm not just bringing it to these to these people that you utterly reject, but I'm also bringing it to these people who are lined up. You know, which again lines up with a, a long history, right? Of Matthew the tax collector and and Zacchaeus and and all of that. I'm I'm my mercy isn't just for those who you think are worthy. It's for it's for all uh, who need and and who persist in their need coming to me, who will work, who will withstand the rebuke and still ask for mercy, and my mercy comes. So Cana, you know, Cana features large here, and and you know we've said so far that it's there is definitely a reminiscence. I mean, the reader of John can't come upon this incidence in verse. Chapter four, and not think of what happened uh, earlier on. Well, and it specifically recounts it, right? It's oh, the t- oh, by the way, this is the town where he had turned water to wine. Right, right. So, so it's like in case you missed it, I'm going to remind you of it. You know, it does I think say something about this official, right? He's not just seeing him as a as a winemaker or a table flipper. He saw the first sign, and it brought him to him to ask for. It's hard to say a greater sign, but uh, I mean, I think we we would appreciate healing uh, in this way. He was certainly asking for something that seemed more impossible, and and so he he saw in Jesus not just a political figure, but somebody who could do these things. It does say that he was doing signs during the feast uh, earlier in chapter two, although it's not one of the specifically named signs. So maybe he was doing some healing, but clearly that's not you know that's not in the front of this text, and. He comes to him asking for this, for something that he had not seen before. But it is interesting that he's like, well, now, when he had learned, and this, this is said twice, you know, and again, we're, we're dealing with this geography again. When he learned that he had come from, not Samaria, but Judea to Galilee, that he was now in the sticks again. Um, and that's pointed out twice in the narrative. So obviously it's an important movement his north-south movement is very important, especially in John, since he comes to Jerusalem so much. Yeah, that is. We were talking in Greek class uh, a couple weeks ago about, uh, what was it, the uh, ascending tricolon? Yes. So would this be an ascending? It's not a tricolon, but you're moving from first sign to second sign to third sign to fourth sign. It's getting bigger. What would you say, more, more intense? intense or revelatory yeah yeah that's that's interesting it'll be interesting to see how that pattern develops won't it if the signs increase in clarity maybe or in importance well we certainly know that opposition to him grows as the signs grow and the seventh sign is lazarus right is that correct i know lazarus is a sign lazarus is a sign and that's when they're really like we have to kill jesus I mean, and that's interesting to me. Like that's and and so his signs are all uh, draw people to him, but they also push people away. As we've read in First John, the light is battling, so to speak, with the darkness. As the signs grow, the as you said, the so does the hostility. 
Well, and we're going to move into his third sign here very quickly, which is another healing, but it's a healing not in Galilee, but down back in Jerusalem. Which is very interesting. So let's get into it. Okay. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool where the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. We move like just jarringly back to Jerusalem. To another feast. Which I think enforces the the mosaic picture, right? We're, we're getting, these aren't necessarily being laid out in the purest of narrative forms. They are being laid out in a way so that we can start to see the bigger picture and be able to proclaim at the end of this book, you, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are, you are God who has died for me to give me life. So in this Tessera, you've got Jesus who just in four came back from a feast and as I was saying, I think he came back home to, to Cana. Mm-hmm. But now, as a pious Jew, he's making his way back for yet another feast, which for the Jew, you said it uh, here recently, Pastor Bross, that you know there was, it was a mandatory three times in which a, a Jew was required to go to Jerusalem. But um, for those who were the overachievers, as it were, there were, there were two voluntary uh, times in which they went to Jerusalem as well. And, and if we're keeping this in a rough timeline, this is probably the Feast of Pentecost, right? It does not tell us what feast at all. And that's um, and there. I, I was just looking quickly through to see if there are any clues that, that it would help us with. And There's not. I, I don't know that we have one. I saw one commentary that said regarding... Uh, the feast that Jesus just came from in four, that that was tabernacles. But I have no idea how in the world this commentator came up with that. That's interesting because the last the last festival that we had heard of was Passover. was the Passover, right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Again, I mean, we the scripture does not say, and we have to be careful about that. But chronologically, the next one would be Pentecost, Pentecost, which is not our Pentecost, but a not the birth of the church, obviously, but a har- an early harvest kind of festival. The Feast of Weeks. Yeah. Yep. Clearly, the, the specific feast isn't what's important here. It's important elsewhere. He makes it very clear, and, and those are things to be clued into. But in this specific instance, it's not important for us to know which feast. No, but going back to what we've said earlier, as a recognized rabbi, as a devout Jewish man, 
you can just see the the pattern really of his life. We we yeah. know that he had morning and evening devotions every day. We know that it was his regular habit to attend synagogue, whether he was at home or whether he was traveling. We know that he makes these pilgrimages to Jerusalem. You're right, Pastor Okru, we don't know the specifics, but yet it is cluing us into how he lived his life. Yeah. And maybe more importantly, he's never just coming down to Jerusalem for funsies. As far as I know, there's not a time when he's in Jerusalem when it isn't specifically connected with the the religious worship of his people and himself. Yeah. And 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 it's important to note too because sometimes you'll see people kind of getting way afield of this. He is willingly and happily and devoutly participating in the worship life of the Jewish people. Lord, I love the habitation of thy house and thy place where thy glory dwells. A- Amen. And, and it's important because he is making the sacrifice. It's not like he's he's angry at what's happening in the temple, but he doesn't reject the temple itself yet. No, there there is no rejection. I mean, Jesus never rejects the temple. Right. And he he does destroy he fulfills, its purpose. He fulfills the temple. Right. And right. and that's important too. And I and cuz to go on even in Acts, where are the early on where are the disciples going to pray? To the, the temple. The temple. They're not making sacrifices there, but they just still do see it as a, a locus of worship of the one true God. Uh, yes. Who, and and cr- as with Christ as the fulfillment of everything the temple points to. Yeah. I mean that would be a pretty awesome thing if the temple were still standing, would Christians continue today to worship at the temple? And yes. I, I would argue they of would. Of course yeah. they would. Yeah. But I also think there's a reason he took it away from us. Uh, of oh, course. Yeah. Just just like he took away the bronze serpent which had right. maybe had been perverted into right. something else. Right. I mean, so, you've got Christians today who travel to Israel just to pray at the Wailing Wall, which calling it the Wailing Wall is a diminutive. You know, it's the Western Wall. The Wailing Wall gives the idea that mocking them for uh, their for, for its loss. Yeah, yeah. Is is it a pejorative? I thought it was. Yeah. I thought it was something that they they. I mean, they willfully cry there for the loss of the temple, right? Right, but Wailing Wall is something that other people said about it, not what they say about it. I mean, this happened many times. Well, but sure. But just like any uh, pejorative, you come to own it, right? Just like Lutheran. They don't own it. They don't? No. Oh, I thought thought that they they were okay with it. No. Oh, okay. I didn't. To them, it's the Western Wall. Oh, Hmm. fair enough. I did not know that. So the point is, is you still have Christians who go to the Wailing Wall. I mean, we've seen presidents do this. They're not Jewish. They all go there. They they pray there. Tons and tons of Christians do it too. But, you know... It is Israel, so there's a there's a place for the Gentiles to touch the Western Wall, and there's a place for the Jews to touch the Western Wall, and uh, there's Christians. Uh, you know, as you as you make your way down, there's a, it's a ramp that goes. You know, it's like it's it's a big pavilion, obviously, and a ramp that goes down, and so you have lavers on one side that all of the Jews go and and wash their hands and they they put on their phylacteries and put on their headgear and there's um, there's paper yarmulkes uh, if I recall for for the Gentiles and uh, there's all these Christians who are getting their little you know paper yarmulke on and then writing their little prayer on the on the little piece of paper so that they can shove it in the wall my point is here's this ruin and Christians flock to it right. Can you imagine if there was a the the remnants or the ruins of a temple 
Oh my goodness. Listen, when I was there, I was on the Temple Mount, there were Christians crying that the temple was gone. It was, I, I was completely blown away. What is that? Uh, you know, that seems to be a very uh, strange, strange reaction I, to, 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 to the to the temple i i mean i the re, so why would we, i'm talking about weeping i i get too. you yeah. I, it wasn't just a, a like tear sobbing sobbing yeah so so would we like would lutherans go to the temple if it were still there i think we probably might i mean maybe to take a picture or or, or even to worship right i mean if it were if it were uh can you imagine worshiping in a place where all the symbology of the entire old testament was standing there proclaiming, in a sense, this that the universal church of the pre-Jesus age used these things to feast in faith on the coming Messiah, and now you're there, and the Messiah has come. I mean, I think I think there might be interesting reasons why a Lutheran would would possibly go to a go to a place like that. I don't get this motivation of just bawling over its loss. What well, well, isn't the reason that it's the lack of a temple that's, I mean, it's literally preventing Jesus from returning. Is right? that what it is? From a certain, yeah, it, from a certain, es- from well, a certain you, twisted eschatology. Correct. An eschatology meaning in end of times right. uh, stuff. And this is why, you know, in that screwed up eschatology, you've got to have the Dome of the Rock removed and, in order for a temple and this is why Christians, built. I think more than even most Jews, are obsessing over this perfect cow out there. That the heifer, be, the red heifer. The red heifer that can be, because that's the only thing that could dedicate a new temple. Well, they've got them. Do they? Oh, yes. Okay. Is this right? So that's, that's just amazing to me. Oh, listen, there's some sort of temple renovation um, project. Fund. fund. <laughs> no, no, well, it's a fund, but it has already supplied it has already supplied everything that one needs for a rebuilt temple if they could just get rid of the dome right wow. they've got the mm-hmm. they've got the materials they've got the clothing they've got the candlesticks they've got the they've got all the pieces of furniture that are built to the exact dimensions that are uh, spelled out in the old testament i mean you can you can find this online this is not a it's not a secret or some sort of conspiracy this is this is, uh, it, it escapes me the name, but it's like Temple Restoration Project or Temple Something Project. Um, they've already scoured the phone book to find the Cohens. Wow, so they can bring him back. So they can bring <laughs> yeah. back the, the priestly priest. tribe. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're, we're getting a little afield here. We are, and actually, but this is a good segue. Yeah, if I can, it if is. I can, because, because this is, this is all that you're talking about here, Pastor Kearns, is is attempting to force the hand of God yes. to bring the blessings of the Messiah. And that's exactly the situation that we have here but at the you, pool. But okay, but last thing, but you see almost you see the wisdom of God. I almost want to say the 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 hilarity of God by putting a Muslim mosque right there. I mean, if that was a clean piece of land and there was nothing there, could you imagine the um, you know, the fight over this piece of land? I mean, there's already a fight over this piece of land, but all these people who want to do something with it, like what we're talking about here, they can't because it would start World War III. The hand, their hands are tied. Right. 
Yeah, so God has a great sense of humor on this, or or, or a great pro- sense of providence. Yeah, yeah, providence, right? Yeah, you 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 think you want to, but they're trying to force the hand of God, and don't realize that God is going to bring about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in His good time. But with or without a temple on that piece of property, because that's not the reg- real temple, regardless of it. Regard- that's not the real temple. But right. see, you would have thought this long ago when the veil is rent at the crucifixion of Christ, like the Lord was even saying then. This show's over, gang. But what did they do? They went and they sewed up the the veil and tried to keep on going just like they had been. And what does the Lord do? He stomps on it, essentially. Yeah. One of the very interesting things to me, as we kind of come back to this pool, the first two signs, Jesus is approached and a question is asked of him or, or a request is made of him. This time, Jesus is the one who approaches and asks the question. And I think that's important, that Jesus isn't just waiting for people to figure things out. Right? His mother is clued in. She doesn't fully get it, but she's clued in. Uh, the official had been clued in. This guy is clueless, and yet Jesus still loves him enough to take care of him. This is a great point that you bring up in my mind, Pastor Oakry. But even before we get there, you know, Jesus comes on the scene. There's all this human misery, really, yeah. that, that he approaches. But why is verse 4 a wall? Good. So does somebody have verse 4 in their text? Yes. But is it a footnote or is it in the text? It's a footnote. Okay. So right. we have this footnote. It's been excised. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll just read it, and then I guess we can talk about versification and things that make it into Scripture and don't. Uh, the footnote is this. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Which is an important note about what is happening here. I think so. But probably, I mean, the reason it's excised from the text is we recognize that as an editorial insertion later on correct so it it's inserted in later much later manuscripts and obviously it would have been a a marginal note that somehow or other was understood by a copyist at a later date when they saw the marginal note as the copyist prior to him having made a mistake and not inserted that and so he inserted it into the text and then it became part of the text so it's in the majority text so in the in the medieval text that that was a established ultimately by uh, Desiderius Erasmus. And it made it into the Western tradition, which is why it is verse 4. The, the versification comes in in the Stephanus editions of the, of the Erasmian texts and from printed in Paris in the early 16th century. Later scholars have understood, based upon a scientific look at the manuscript evidence, much earlier manuscripts, that this is simply an interpolation from a later date. But even if it's not, even if this myth were true, Jesus is going to turn around and he's going to do something far greater than any angel Absolutely. could do. You're right, right. At right. this pool of Bethesda. Well, let's assume that the myth is true. <laughs> That's what right? I would like, yeah. to, like to do. Right. That comment makes sense of, of what the man says in verse 7, right? Um, the, the sick man responded to him, Lord, I don't have a human being uh, in order that when the water is, is stirred up, he might toss me into the pool. By the time I get there, somebody 
gets in there before me. It's a pretty stingy angel. Maybe it is true, but you know, I've always read that as kind of the myth surrounding the pool. And clearly, there's something that's drawing people there. There's something happening, but you know, people get drawn to all kinds of things that are said to have power but don't actually have power. So, to me, it's hard to say this isn't part of the text. And just as an aside, because I don't want this to trouble our listeners, because sometimes when we're like, "Wait, there's a thing that was in the Bible, but now isn't in the Bible," this is the job of of what we call. Uh, textual criticism and we've always kind of had to address the the text with an eye towards uh, what is uh, properly scripture and what isn't because copyists do come along and they'll they'll write things and um and just like we'll do you know i'll quote a scripture and i'll quote it wrong uh because i because i there's a truth in what i'm quoting but it's not the exact quote, right? Or you've got two translations going on in your head. You know, you yeah. were raised with one translation, and then the ESV comes along, and this happens to me, um, you know, like at the lectern. Like, I, I know the text because I've read it so many times, but but the words are coming out uh, NASB, yeah. and it's ESV that's yeah. uh, written. Or I mess up the old catechism with the new. I mean, like, when, once you memorize something. Sure. But... Or you know they're just they're just a little sloppy in their copyist work because what they're literally doing is they they'll have a page of scripture, they'll have some 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 version of scripture before them, and then they're literally just trying to carefully copy it, and they'll they'll turn a, a Jesus into a he or they'll turn a he into a Jesus. Those are the mo- those are the majority of the errors that we encounter, and not errors, but. Um, mismatches that we encounter right and, which and, are and, meaningless well i'm glad that four though is at least in the footnotes as opposed to just being excised totally and you would never gone. even see it yeah yep yep uh there, there's one other thing that really is a big issue and mm-hmm. it's the um you have the synoptic gospels matthew mark and luke and they'll tell the same exact episode and sometimes they'll uh you know instead of jesus it'll be jesus the christ Right, and so the copyist has Luke running through his head, and the the reader the, in the scriptorium is reading Matthew. He's supposed to be copying Matthew, but he thinks the reader skips Christ, and so he inserts Christ into the text. Yeah, it, these are all very minimal. Right. I, I think we need to stress that yeah. that that these textual variants are there, there's none of them that it, that does or doesn't establish doctrine. Right. Now, but this is priming us for an event that is uh, later on. That's we will have a, a much a much meatier chunk of, of Scripture, which is, uh, uh, it's, it's hard to maybe locate its proper home. So, but I think it's, but I think it's important for us to talk about textual criticism. Because I remember growing up, I, I just thought that, you know, you give me the ESV, and that's a, just a modernization of the King James Version, which is just a modernization of something or another. And, you know, we've interpolated it through 12 different phases, and who knows what we have in our hand is good or not. And and I think that mindset is still sometimes in our people's heads. And I, I just want our people to understand that, no, we very seriously um, go back to the original text, uh, as original as we can find them, and and and. There's lots of them floating around. In fact, there's it's it is. Am, am I correct in saying that it is the best evidenced classical document? Absolutely, ancient, by, ancient, and classical by right? miles. Yes. Yeah, by miles. So we have a lot of these things floating around, and and there are differences, and some and some people who are trying to make you question God's word will make a lot of hay about those differences. But 
99.7% of those differences mean absolutely nothing. They're, they're differences between he and Jesus or commas or commas or whatever it might be. And then the few places where it's like, well, that's interesting like this. Um, it's still very explainable. It's like, well, this was obviously just a, a scribal insertion of what it would be a note. It's, it, it'd be if you're reading your, your Bible and you take your study note and you accidentally insert it into the text itself. And then somebody comes along and goes, well, that doesn't belong there. Let's pull that out. And But look at how seriously we take this. For the preservation of the truth of God's word, we've plucked that entire versification out. But it's also important to note that chapters and verses in the Bible, as you say, came along right around the same time as Luther did. <laughs> And that these are not... Chap, these, chapters much earlier. Okay. Yep. But like ver- 400? Yeah. Okay. But verses are a late insertion, and they're artificial. And and sometimes they, they, they drive us nuts because they break things up in a weird way. Yeah, I wish they would have asked us. I mean, the three of us, where to put these verses. Yeah. It would have... But they didn't. They didn't. Well, I mean, they're just... I mean, I think the our, our break here, right... Uh, even the ESV translators say, well, no, there really is a break in thought here uh, in verse 9. Well, you should break that up with a separate verse, but they don't, right? Because they had a different thought back then. But don't ever let that stymie you. I mean, these verses are, again, artificial. They're helpful because they help us to talk to each other about the Bible in a, in a way that's common. So Jesus comes to this man, as you mentioned earlier, Pastor Oakry, and he asks him, do you want to be healed? We all experience this when we're dealing a lot of times, not with our, our people, but people who are miserable and who are asking for our help. You know, they want to tell us the story. You know, they want to tell us how they got to where they are or what they're dealing with. Uh, they all want to do this. It's like Jesus already knows the story. He already knows that this man has been here 38 years. He already knows that he's paralyzed. He he knows the entire story of this man's life, which, and call me crazy, but it reminds me of of Adam, who's made in the image of God, who, who knows things about people. And here's Jesus. He knows the the story of this man without this man ever without this man ever saying anything. And so I love what you said, Pastor Oakry, about how he approaches him and says, Do you want to be healed? Well, and this, I think, lines up. He sees, so we have this, we have these important, right? We have, he sees him and he knows him, which again, harkens me back to the end of chapter two, for he himself knew what was in man. And it wasn't just his sin. He knows the suffering of men. And that's important too, because I think sometimes you read that as just a flat, well, people are sinful and rejecting and all those things. But he also knows that our lives are a mess. And this, And he sees this guy and he knows because he knows his heart. This, this guy's a mess. This guy is suffering. But think about that if you had that ability. I mean, you mentioned the other day, you and I were talking about a friend of ours, and you said something like, if you could get into somebody's brain and fix it, you would, you know, but, yeah. but we can't. Right. Well, imagine having this ability to see past the facade in everybody and to know what's actually happening and what they're dealing with, what they're suffering with, what they're going through. Man, I don't <laughs> I don't know if that's a blessing or a curse. Well, it's a blessing for the son of God because he can handle it, right? Exactly. Yeah. I couldn't handle it. That, that's <laughs> yeah, my point, yeah, you know? Yeah. And this is so beautifully seen. I think uh, with Adam, 
again, made in the image of God. He awakens. He sees Eve. You know, this only a woman can do this, right? I mean, here's a here's a guy who's naming animals, and then all of a sudden he busts out into poetry, right? When yeah, he when yeah. he sees this woman, but what does he say? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He sees in her so much so as to know that her makeup, meaning her innards, are just like his. Yeah. And here's Jesus doing the exact same thing. And this is, I mean, this is all very fascinating because, I mean, we, we linger on this man for a little bit, right? Uh, we're, we're told specific the specifics, right? 38 years. Does that mean he was 38 years old? <laughs> or that, you know, he, it's, we don't know exactly, but he's, he's, he's been suffering for a very long time. He has, and I'm going to make an argument that he is uh, older than 38 here in a little bit. Okay. But also, then, this makes me think about, uh, again, these two miracles are placed right next to each other, just like the, the healing of Jairus' daughter and the woman with the discharge of blood, who it's a child in a kind of an immediate critical place, and it's a person who has been suffering for a long time, and Jesus handles both of them uh, through his word. I mean, and, and you're like, well, no, he, he touched the cloak, right? But I mean, he is the word, and so mm-hmm. it just it's, it's the power of him, the word made flesh. And so I think it's interesting how we contrast those things. There's not a sickness. On, on the surface, what we're seeing is there's not a sickness that he can't handle. He, he can handle people near death. He can pe- handle people. I mean, this guy could have lived his entire life, whatever, and been fine. He's suffering, but not dead. And Jesus cares about both. He cares about people in critical situations. He cares about people in prolonged situations. But what a question to ask. <laughs> I mean, do you want to be healed? I mean, if, no. That's, I, dummy, yes, I'm here. Why do you think I'm here? You know, uh, of course I want to be healed, but I can't be. And, and, but, may, but you notice he felt like he had to explain himself. He didn't say no, dummy, you know, or whatever. He's, he said, well, why do you think I'm here? And, and I wonder if people had come along and said, if you, if, if you trusted in God more, you'd get into that water at the right time. And he's, and he's like, I've been trying. 38 years, I've been trying. And somebody always sneaks in in front of me. And to me, I don't know what to make of this water. Whatever's happening in this pool doesn't feel like it's from God to me. It feels like it's a way to destroy people instead of lift them up. Well, there's definitely, uh, you know, I want to just jump in here and, and say that there are some really interesting verbal clues about verbal over- overtones. Um, I mean, there is water. This, this, cannot, mm. this cannot not remind us of baptism. But as you point out, the pool itself is not the baptism. Jesus is the one mm-hmm. who has the baptism. Then, uh, you know, it's very interesting that the man says, this man said, that the term throughout here is not aner you know, male human being, it's anthropos, which is so interesting. So he tells Jesus, when this pool gets stirred up, I don't, there's no anthropos to toss me in. Well, here comes along the the, anthropos, the the capital alpha anthropos, (laughs) right? Who's going to take care of this, the second Adam. And to me, the vocabulary in verse nine, which we just blow over in English, you just can't see it. When Jesus says, rise, take your bed and go home. That word rise, that's a resurrection term. It's a ghetto. There are different ways to say get up. But he uses a resurrection word. 
To me, this is very, very interesting. Well, it ties in perfectly with what he's going to talk about a little bit later on. It, totally. It we, has, you have to make this connection. Exactly. we we got to be prepped. Otherwise, what Jesus says later makes absolutely no sense. And fascinatingly, this particular semeon comes on the heels of a restoration to life, which is, is itself like a foretaste of the resurrection, just like Lazarus. Um, your child lives. So here we've got Jesus as the second Adam. We've got Jesus supplanting fruitless water with himself and bringing, you know, theoretically a different water. And we've got resurrection. So I think penetrating it at this level and kind of seeing what John is up to here is is pretty important to to get the full kind of impact of what's going on. When the second Adam shows up, watch out. Yeah, and of Life course, is restored. Yeah, because that you may have life in his name, and he is the one coming and bestowing that life. What is being contrasted against here, the, kind of the idea of human washing, the, 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 well, like you, like you said at the temple, right? You have to come and wash and cleanse yourself. We, we, there's no washing that can truly raise us up. There's no washing that can bring us life. Uh, except the washing connected to the word. For, for that is what baptism is. It's not, there's nothing. And it's interesting, right? We would say there's no special water place where angels come and stir the water to make baptism happen. We say wherever Jesus is with his word of promise is, uh, that water is baptismal water, right? We don't believe in holy water for splashing on vampires or whatever, right? Um, we we believe that that water is the water because it has the promise connected to it. And so here, this water has been useless to this man until Jesus actually comes and puts his word on him. Now, there's no actual washing here. No. But no. But it is important to note that it is, and, but we would say washing washing itself is, is meaningless. You The word is what drives it. Right. Connected with, with water and baptism. And uh, just another notice here to bring up in verse the missing verse four uh it says um angel of the lord that's who comes angel of the lord angelos kiriu so the second person of the blessed trinity in the old testament is the angel of the lord and you see in in later in acts and paul's defense speech when he splits the again I, I appeal to this very often because it's so critical to understand that jews in jesus's day did believe in the blessed trinity so he appeals to his belief in resurrection in angel and in spirit so the resurrection is just you know i mean that's that's the that's the eschatological resurrection but when he talks about angel and spirit he's talking about the two persons of the godhead that the sadducees deny but that the pharisees embrace so here it is the second person of the blessed trinity according to lore who comes down stirs the water and brings the healing well fascinatingly here the angel of the lord comes to the man in the flesh this is exactly what john says in 114 the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory is of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth so the man and everybody around the pool are looking for an angel, and he walks up to him. He walks up to him. And my guess is, you know, as we've already pointed out, that here's this pious Jew who comes to Jerusalem five times a year, and he's been doing it ever since he was born. He's seen this man before. Oh, that's interesting. 
I like that. And then, if I'm not mistaken, in Israel, in Israel, the remnants of this pool are still there. Most of it's been destroyed through time or what have you, because this is a tourist attraction to go down to uh, to this pool. As another aside, it is always interesting to me. Like they dam up parts of the Jordan River for tourists to come and experience it. Well, you know, most of it's just a gross trickle, right? Because they they need that water for irrigation. You know, just the stuff they do to kind of create this. To bring us back. And guess who's in there getting baptized? Oh, One after the other. It's Christians. So that they can go home and say, I was baptized in the Jordan River. Right. And this is maybe their third or fourth baptism. Oh, sure. Well, it's $15 per person. A robe is $5 to rent. And then a locker is three. So (sighs) so it's a good, it's a good deal. Yes. And a good moneymaker, right? (laughs) Yeah. So, wow. Do you get a rabbi to baptize you? How does that work? No, you're <laughs> I'm no, kidding. That might, I'm sure they have those available for an extra fee. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is that this man does nothing other than just explain his suffering. He doesn't make any great, at, at this point, he makes no great confession of faith or anything. He just, he's healed and he walks. But as the text tells us, that day was the Sabbath. What is the big deal about about the Sabbath and Sabbath breaking? Well, this begins a, a, a controversy that we notice not only in the Gospel according to St. John, but in virtually every one of the other Gospels. Uh, we have this issue uh, over the Sabbath. And, you know, let's, let's remind people what the Sabbath day is. The Sabbath day is the Saturday. It's the day on which the Lord rested from all of his works. And uh, in the Old Testament, the Lord gives two reasons for people to observe the Sabbath. In the institution of the Sabbath day in uh, Exodus, he says it's because you used to be slaves, <laughs> and now now you're not. So this is to commemorate your freedom from slavery. Uh, in Deuteronomy, uh, the Lord gives the reason that he had worked for six days, and on the seventh day he rested. And so the Jews observed this very, very pointedly uh, throughout their history, they stop working on the Sabbath. Right, and you still see that today where like uh, you can't turn on your oven or anything like that if you're a, uh, an Orthodox Jew and trying to observe the Sabbath. Or, did you know this? They have what are called Shabbat elevators. No. Huh. A Shabbat elevator is an elevator that opens and closes automatically on every floor. Because if you're living in an apartment building, which, you know, this is typical for, you know, this compact urban area, if you were to press the elevator button, a light comes on, you would be essentially starting a fire. So on the Shabbat elevator... Why would you be starting a fire? Because it lights up. You can't, it's... This oh, is, I see. Okay, so starting a fire is forbidden. Right. By pressing the button, you're starting a fire. Right. I get you. Okay. Right. <laughs> so if you were to go to Jerusalem and be there on Shabbat, Sabbath, there are chairs in this elevator because if you live on the 16th floor... It's going to take a long time. It's going to take some time. Yeah. So you sit down. And wait until this elevator opens and closes and opens and closes and opens and closes. 
So, and all of that is strange to us. And some of the, the things we see as kind of loopholes to that, where like you ask your neighbor to come over to light the fire for you or something like that. But, or you put everything on a timer. Right. But that's, that's hardly the point. I mean, what we are trying to see here is that they are trying, it's at least coming from a good place. They're trying to be faithful to God's command to rest. Well, they're fencing, right? They're fencing yeah. the law. Yeah. But they're doing it in, in, in finding rest. They're kind of doing it in the most exhausting way possible, right? I mean, that's, it's very interesting to me. Um, I know one of the uh, admonitions is like they had, a, they had a rule on how much jewelry you could wear. And if it was just a because that's why the women couldn't wear a lot of jewelry because they'd be carrying a load kind of stuff. And, you know, and, and we, we think of all that and we think that's kind of quaint and maybe even a little bit silly. But it is an earnest attempt to keep rest in view. But then Jesus comes in and he says, you guys, you guys are doing this wrong. <laughs> you guys don't understand what rest is. And I think that's that's always the tension here. And that's why, I mean... <clears throat> He, he, he has to be doing this on purpose, right? It's not like John here makes it sound like, oh, it just happened to be the Sabbath no, day. No, I totally but, agree. But time and time again, it's like, it was the Sabbath day, and Jesus was like, I'm going to do a healing miracle. On he, purpose. On purpose, in front of the Pharisees, or in, you know, in earshot of the Pharisees at least, because they need to be confronted with their own sin, their own pride because what are they, they're saying they're proud of themselves for not taking care of people who are suffering because it's the Sabbath and they're like this really pleases God <laughs> well and the reason that you know this man grabs the attention of the Pharisees is because exactly what Jesus told him to do you spoke of these women who are you know they couldn't be like Mr. T and carry this load of jewelry on their around their neck Jesus says take up this mat Pick it up. You're picking up a load. You are working on the Sabbath. Right, and it would not be a, a kind of a light yoga mat either, right, stuffed with, you know, uh, space-age fabrics. This is this is a heavy thing that's uh, probably got cotton stuffing and some straw and other things like that, so this is not an easy thing to do at all. And there was probably other things associated with the mat, you know, that, that were his. I mean, obviously, he's been in this condition. He's got... He's got his things around him, whatever those things happen to be. So it, it was no doubt a load. So, you know, what Jesus is driving at here in, in doing this is um, is really, you had said he, had, he, he was doing it to expose their sin, but I think digging into that a little bit would be helpful. You know, the sin here is not observing the law. It's missing, uh, really what, what the issue is, is that a sinful human being hears the words of God's law and misunderstands what God is attempting to do with his law. The sinful human being hears the Decalogue, whatever, you know, the Ten Commandments, and says, uh, and begins to use them as a tool for pleasing God, not realizing that God's pleasure in the man is actually in his son, Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus is getting at. Absolutely. Oh, and trying to see then that finally it is God's mercy that is the bigger view than the punctiliousness of the law. What pleases God is that he is able to be merciful to us. Correct. And, and being merciful to a person on the Sabbath day by healing him is completely in line with, with God's order. This instance, though, is a little bit different from the other ones that we encounter 
in some of the other gospels, like where Jesus does a, a healing on the Sabbath. And, and the question is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, here, that's not the issue. No one's, at least yet, kind of barking up uh, Jesus's back about healing on the Sabbath. They're upset that the man is carrying his cot on the Sabbath. Correct. So he's the Sabbath breaker. Right. Not Jesus. And not yet. And, not he, yet, and, not he, yet. and he points the finger at Jesus saying, well, I was given permission, I, ostensibly, I think, saying by a rabbi to do this. And I think it's very interesting. This man who is healed becomes the one who creates the difficulty for Jesus. As we look at the, the mosaic of John, what role is this man playing in that mosaic? And I think it's it's kind of setting the stage for what's going to really hit the fan in John 6, which is these people receiving blessings from God, but not appreciating them in their graciousness. And they're still wanting to please kind of the, the worldly structure around them and play those games. And so then he comes, he comes and plays the tattletale, right? Nope, oh, nope, there he is. Yeah, don't yell at me, yell at him. Is this part of the John 1 not being received by his own? Or is it to show God's great condescension that, that he subjects himself even to this, that, it, that he doesn't uh, redeem the convenient, but even the inconvenient? Right. And Jesus willingly heals a man who is going to create difficulty for him and, and maybe doesn't faithfully receive uh, the healing. I don't want to read too much into this man and, and, and his faith, but he is certainly struggling to understand what this healing means and what it means in the context of the religious structure as he understands it. You know, there's a little uh, hint here too in, in 17 and 18. Um, by this point in 17 and 18, they have blamed Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. And uh, 17 says, uh, Jesus responded to them, my father is working up till this point and I myself am working. Now, here's the, here's the point. On account of this, therefore, uh, they even more sought, the Jews sought even more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he said that God was his uh, own father and made himself equal to God. So blasphemy. Yeah, we've got blasphemy. And so... There's lots of really interesting stuff here. You've heard the claim probably, and probably our hearers have as well, that in the Gospels, Jesus never says that he is God. Right. Right? It's so silly. It is so silly. And here it's very clear that he has said that he is God. Otherwise, why? they, they have no reason for a charge of blasphemy. So that's number one. Number two, we, we do see this sort of trajectory heading to the cross of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it really is finally going to be the charge uh, against him is going to be the charge of blasphemy. And, and this is already developing. Numerous occasions in the gospel, according to St. John, we get hints that this is coming and Jesus ducks away from it because his hour has not yet come. And this is a, a message that we hear very early on, for example, at the wedding of Cana, you know, woman, why are you bothering me? My, it is not yet my hour. 
Uh, or when he goes into the synagogue and he reads the, well, what Isaiah, the scroll from Isaiah, they, a little bit later on, they're asking the question, like, isn't this just the carpenter's son? And then they want to take him out to some ledge and cast him off, and he disappears from their midst? That's Luke 4, I think. Yeah. Yep. So what you're saying is all of this stuff is really brewing. It's brewing. The healing on the Sabbath, the instructing others to break the Sabbath— i.e., you know, pick up your mat and go home, the blasphemy. All of these things are being considered in the minds of the religious elite. Right. And to the reader, this is what's happening. Jesus breaks the Sabbath because he is the Sabbath. And Jesus is the Sabbath because of his sacrificial death for the sins of the world. I think that's what's coming, that's what's coalescing, coming together here in this little tiny notice in uh, verse 18. Well, you think about Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 21 and 22. It says it very clearly. It says, Take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath. Or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. This is in the minds of these religious elite. It's very clear to them that Jesus is going against what the Lord has commanded their forefathers. Right. But they don't see it as what you just said of him being the Lord of the Sabbath. Right, exactly. They, they don't see that that Jeremiah passage even is pointing to Jesus ironically. And this is the kind of the whole point of John. It's like all this stuff has been written about me, Jesus, and no one's getting it. Well, and I think there's a, a deeper point as well, which is that when Jesus says man was not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man, it draws us into this truth where it's not our rigorous keeping of rest, whatever that looks like, that is the point. The point is that we need rest. And Jesus is working on the Sabbath because he's not just man. He is also God, and God never stops working. Even on, on that seventh day when he rested, that doesn't mean like he just kind of like dozed off and lost track of things for a while and then woke up and said, oh, I better uh, see what's happening down there. Oh, no, there's an apple happening, you know, kind of thing. No, he actually is keeping working, and that's part of our picture of worship, and that's why it's restful for us because God is serving us. And he's still working on the Sabbath for us and our good. So in connection with that, let's just go to verse 19. Jesus responded and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son cannot do of himself anything unless he sees the Father doing something. Uh, for the, whatsoever things the Father does, these things the Son likewise does. You know, in connection with what you're saying, Jesus is actually making a claim about about the Father's continued work, even on the Sabbath here, and laying claim to that and saying, if he does it, that's exactly what I do. And as you know, it's more than just his works. It's also his words. I mean, elsewhere in the scriptures, it says, listen, I'm not, I mean, this is my paraphrase. I'm not telling you anything that God, that God the Father hasn't told me. My right. words are life. And the doctrine I teach is God's. So it's his works and his words that really originate, not with him, but with God the Father. 
Yeah. And this gets us kind of back to what we were talking about, what we have been in another conversation altogether on the first epistle of St. John, um, where the fellowship that John longs for, for his hearers, is with the Father through the Son. And that, that's becoming very clear here as well. What were the Pharisees viewing as the Sabbath? It wasn't a restful thing for them. It was meticulous and careful and kind of awful, right? And they, their, their Sabbath rest was not restful for them. You know how like you see pictures of Saudi Arabia and you've got these guys walking around, you know, with their the headdress on and they're everywhere and they're all wearing the exact same garb. It's not that they're just keeping their religious duties, but they're also like policemen. They're making sure that women aren't driving or women are covered or, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. So to speak about how it wasn't restful, not only were they performing their own religious duty, but they're making sure that everybody else is too. And they're always the ones pointing it out. In the most restful way possible, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, we that's, see, that's interesting, isn't it? We don't yeah. think of them as the being to which they policemen, go. Yeah. so to speak, you know, pointing out. But this is what they're always doing. And it seems that Jesus always happens to be at the place where the where the inspectors are coming by and on purpose getting them all riled up. Yeah, that's good. And, and I think the point is here is Jesus coming in and they're saying, you're such a radical Jesus. What are you doing? You're, you're, you're blowing up the Sabbath day. And if you blow up the Sabbath day, we're going to lose everything. And he's saying, I'm not the radical. I know what the Sabbath is better than you do. You're the radicals. You're the ones that have taken this gift of God and turned it into some awful burden to lay on the shoulders. You lay it on your shoulders, but you're mostly using it, like you say, to lay on the shoulders of others. I think there's actually a special instance here, though, uh, Pastor Oakery, that, that this is, this is u- unique in a sense, that the Sabbath law does point to Christ and to, to demand a kind of fastidious keeping of it is specifically to miss the point of this particular commandment of God. They have entirely missed the point (laughs) that the Sabbath, as you said way early on, that the Sabbath has been pointing to the incarnation of the Son of God all along, and here he is. I genuinely believe the Pharisees, at least from their beginnings, were trying to create a life of piety around the core belief, which is This is a day of rest. Mm -hmm. We have very specific instructions in Scripture about what that rest should be. Let's live our lives according to that. Uh, And I think that's a genuinely good place to be. But Jesus comes along and says, well, no, you've, you've misapplied it on the lives of these people because it was not made. uh, We don't, we don't get brownie points with God in this way because we weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for us. Correct. To me, it's interesting how quickly the conversation that Jesus, in his monologue here now, starting in verse 19, gets into the resurrection. Right. Right? And it's kind of like these kind of whiplash moments happen in John where you're like, wait, hold on a sec. You were just talking about the Sabbath, and now we're talking about the resurrection? How how does this add up? But the resurrection of the dead is the greatest Sabbath of all, is it not? Correct. And that, right. And so if we, if we're, if we're just thinking that John, that Jesus is this kind of maniac 
you know, flitting from one topic to the next and not connecting them in any meaningful yeah. way. We missed that point. Right. Yeah. And just to see that this man, as you pointed out earlier, I mean, this is resurrection language that right. John uses. Right. He stood up on Este, yeah. And, and I think it's tremendous because I think when we think about rest, we think about death, right? Rest in peace. And Jesus comes and he says, no, genuine rest is life, eternal life. It's actually living life with God. Forever. You know, we hear so many uh, evangelical sermons. It's John 10, 10. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Uh, abundant life, as other translations uh, use it. The thief is always pictured as the devil, which in the context, it's false teachers. And abundant life is always pictured as your best life now. Instead of what you just said, Pastor Oakry, of, you know, the eternal rest is is eternal life, life with God. Well, we've kind of uh, concluded, we, we're starting with the conclusion in a sense uh, that, that we've got the Jews uh, after Jesus, but we need to really take up the narrative strand, uh, starting again with uh, verse 10, pretty much. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So, and the Jews realize that this was not a metaphorical equal with God. I mean, they know exactly what he is saying uh, when he's blaspheming like this. And I think your point, I mean, we've seen enough of Middle Eastern culture, and I'm not trying, you know, to, to dog a Middle Eastern culture compared to any other culture, but these folks are like volatile when it comes to breaking God's commands. I mean, they will they will hurt you quickly. And so there does seem to be some sort of restraint as Jesus continues to work, as Jesus continues to teach, uh, rather than them just immediately going after the jugular. That is very, that's a very interesting observation. You're, so what you're suggesting is that based upon the way we have, even in modern times, seen things go down, a statement like this should have been immediate yeah, yeah, that's interesting. We we pick up we we all pick up stones and start start stoning mm -hmm. this individual. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. no different from uh, the woman who's caught in adultery. We bring her out and we're we've already got the stones and they're ready to to take care of this and they feel justified by doing so. Mm -hmm. And that's not the only account. There's other accounts to too. But I mean, is, I I think that is so insightful because I think that has to be where a pious person stuck in works righteousness has to go to. I have to control not just my behaviors, but the behaviors of those around me because God is there 
And if I don't do the right things, we don't do the right things, we're in trouble. Belief dictates behavior. So there is a belief inside of their minds that really grounds their, well, as I say, it's driving their behavior. For instance, the northern kingdom gets wiped off the face of the earth by their idolatry. The southern kingdom had been uh, wiped off the face of the earth too, with, with the exception of this small remnant that's deported to Babylon. They're trying to maintain this control so that God's judgment doesn't befall them like it has in the past. Exactly. And that's why they're not just trying to stop him. They're trying to kill him. Right. I mean, this is the the human opposition to the gospel. And this is why I say when you said earlier the way you read it, not that I've got a problem with it, but when in verse 12, uh, the Jews asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? <laughs> you were like, who is he? <laughs> Let me find him. You know, yeah, 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 this fair is enough. so much Well, I know. Uh, I mean, it's volatile. good. Well, sometimes you have to get the, the, the cadence down. And right, it's not just a, oh, I'm, I'm vaguely curious about this. Please share with me. And you can tell this guy got the, pick, got the memo because he's like, oh, I, I know who he is now. I'm going to go make these very angry men who have some power over my life happy by telling them who messed up because it wasn't me earlier we had brought up the question like what was the age of this man if he has been paralyzed like this the entirety of his life i had made mention that he's older than 38 i think the text gives that away when jesus approaches him and says see you are well sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you there's certain sins that have inherent punishments built into them. And this is one of them. This man's affliction, I'm arguing, is connected to his sin. Because Jesus says, sin no more. Not all sin is related to that. We're going to get a blind man here in a little bit who they're going to ask, this ailment that this, this man has, is it because he sinned or because his parents sinned? Jesus says, neither. Right? So not all sin is connected to physical malady. And not all physical malady is connected to sin. Right. To, to a specific sin. Right. 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 Yeah. But some sin is. And it seems to be the case. I don't know what it is. The Lord doesn't tell us. But he says sin no more. So nothing worse happens. That's interesting. And I, and I don't, um, you know, wouldn't disagree in principle with the theory at all. To me, it's very interesting that Jesus, okay, so the guy gets healed. Where does he go immediately, apparently? He goes to the temple. He begins to keep the Sabbath. Of all the strange things that he should be told while he's keeping the Sabbath is stop sinning. It's it's meketi hamartan. It's stop sinning any longer rather than don't sin, don't sin anymore. It's a slightly different thing. It does make me wonder, you know, you're suggesting a prior sin. Let's say that he was a thug and, you know, got arrested and beat up. And that's what his, you know, lameness is. But by this time in the gospel, according to St. John, who do we know the temple is? Christ. Where are people going to worship the Father in spirit and in truth? Jesus. To me, there's an, an, an interesting thing happening here, at least for, as the reader has been able to observe how some things of, you know, ideas have developed. 
that we have the man doing what should be regarded as kind of the most pious thing possible, observing the Sabbath in the very temple itself and being called out by Jesus for sinning. And, and this goes hand in glove with what Pastor Kearns was just saying. You know, if, if he has gone to the temple now and so, so he's received the, the healing from, from the Lord of the Sabbath himself, right? For this man, this is the equivalent of Jesus' word on the cross, to Telestai, it's finished. I've taken care of it for you. Okay, buddy, don't worry about it. But if he has now returned to the temple and the sacrificial system, and it's like, okay, God, you know, one time I got arrested by the Romans and got the snot beat out of me, I, I obviously have to have some, you know, I've got some work to do on that one, so please receive this sacrifice then you're exactly right. It's, it you know, connects all nicely together. Again, it, we're, we're reading between the lines here a little bit, but it is, uh, you know, is, is he kind of that typical bargain maker with God? You know, if I get this thing, I'll be very faithful and go to church. And how long does that last, of course? The other thing that is intriguing is this could be John's um, 10 lepers uh, kind of account where this man is literally healed by Jesus and he can't even be bothered to keep track of him to, to even thank him. Um, I mean, I know Jesus withdraws, but he's so busy trying to run to the temple instead of to the one who actually brought him healing. Well, in his defense, though, it seems like the people who were right on his tails, as soon as he stands up and picks up his mat, are these hostile Jews. They're yeah. sucking all the air out of the room where he can't follow Jesus and say, "Where wherever you go, I want to go with you. I mean... But Jesus teaches him that, that he ought to, right? So, so in a sense, these guys reprise, reprise the role of the, the evil conscience and um, you know, the accusations of the devil and other things like this. And we, reading it from this distance that we have, are able to say, hey, guy, you really should have followed Jesus. You know, it, it's pretty obvious. Well, what's happening as we say that? We're teaching ourselves how we flee the condemnation of the law and find our own healing in the wounds of Jesus and basically say to hell with what anybody else says, I have Jesus. So you said earlier that he was in the temple keeping the Sabbath. I mean, that's what I want to presume. And, and again, that's, right. you know, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like your theory that he's got a, some old sin and this is a you know theory that he's gone to the temple to keep the Sabbath. I don't. You're making him out to be very pious, which I hope that he is in going to the temple. But you know maybe he's going to go look for his uh, gang of thieves that he used to hang out with before. I mean, the well, temple precinct is a big place with lots of people, especially on this day. And uh, and the Lord finds him and mm. and warns him almost like Cain. If you do well, mm-hmm. will not your countenance be lifted up? Like, don't let this control you. Cain is the perfect example of somebody who did not listen to what the Lord said. Mm-hmm. And, and the Lord Jesus, you know, to, to connect this with another passage, Romans chapter 6, where uh, in baptism, through our burial with Christ, we, as he is dead to sin, are also dead to sin. There's a way of living as a sinner that... That isn't necessarily the committing of sin. It's it's uh, it it often is, uh, but it's living under the cl- claims of sin, or as as John puts it elsewhere, living in darkness. Right, mm-hmm. and when you have the light right there, and 
you know, what happens when you live in the darkness? Well, of course, that's when uh, uh, dirty deeds are done. But even more, it's just you can't see and you stumble about and you can't find where you're going. And, uh, and, and that is, and so all of this is to say, and I think, you know, this is always a place where I think as Lutherans, we tend to stumble over ourselves because we, we don't want to lose sight of the absolute and perfect forgiveness we have in Christ. But there is absolutely a call here in, in Jesus to struggle against sin, especially manifest sin, sin that is bringing harm to ourselves and to others. And of course, finally, at the end of the day, no matter what, what, what we experience in life, we will sin and we need the cross. We're never going to outgrow it. Our fight against sin is never an outrunning of the Christ. It's a returning to the cross. But to be told, like Cain was, like this man was, a life of struggling against sin instead of just wallowing in sin like a pig in the mud is worth it. And we don't just sit there waiting on God's forgiveness. We live a life in light of that forgiveness that calls us to struggle and struggle and struggle. And that struggle is a, is a good thing. It's a God-blessed thing that he calls us to. It is precisely in the struggle against sin. And, and even as we gain the upper hand, if you will, getting over certain crass sins and things like that and improving our, our um, outward love toward our neighbor, it's precisely in that that we, we, we really aren't defeating sin. We're, realize, we're, we're discovering how much more problematic our sin problem is than we ever thought in the first place. Uh, you know, you conquer one and there's another and or you conquer layers of an onion. Exactly. You conquer the superficial one and you realize, hey, the problem r- was kind of out here, but it's really down in the core. That's where it's all rotten. Yeah. And I can't I can't get there. It's it's not a it's not a relaxed way to live your life. That's for sure. But it's a very good way to live your life. Mm-hmm. That living your life with that discipline. I can't remember what context we were talking about. But Paul uh, talking about the Christian life being like training, right? Uh, training for a marathon. Buffeting my body. Yeah. I, I mean, not buffeting. <laughs> oh, I misread it. That was my problem. Uh, but yeah, this, this life lived in intentional strife. And we know it, right? When, when you go to the gym and your body gets into shape, you, you feel the benefits of that. And when you live a spiritually disciplined life, struggling against sin, and again, it's it's not something we accomplish on our own. It's always accomplished in Christ. You realize the benefits of it. Because there are real benefits to putting aside especially crass sin. Yeah. And there are also real downfalls when you don't. In the sense that when Jesus says to him, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, now okay, what has happened to this man? He's... He's been 38 years lying beside a pool. Everybody in town and the people who come into town various times of the year, they've seen this man. They know exactly who he is. What worse could happen to him? How about hell? It is a fearful thing to fall Mm -hmm. into the hands of the living God. Mm -hmm. It's got to be hell. Right. That's good. Yep. Yep. I I do think people nowadays, I mean, in the church, it's, it's a different picture, but... Hell has become such an abstraction and such a, and it's been warped culturally for us too, right? If I'm in hell, I'll be there with all my buddies drinking beer. <laughs> no, you don't get friends in hell. That's a good, friends are a gift of God. Come on, man. Uh, and beer. <laughs> I think we all have somebody in our life that just live their life in a way where they're just constantly 
strolling through life like like in the darkness and then they're utterly gobsmacked when awful things kind of just whap into them and it's easy to turn that into kind of a, a self-improvement kind of mantra and that's not what we're saying here you have to have christ you have to have his forgiveness but in that you do see like a life built on on something much better and you you actually do see improvement on this side of eternity but you you only see improvement on this side of eternity because you're longing for eternity itself i think sometimes we we dismiss that and people just live their lives just so carelessly and then they're absolutely surprised when sin has its way with them right well you know you think about the the conclusion to the 10 commandments oftentimes we dismiss those as as being, um, you know, they're just the, the thing that God uses to, to help us see that we need him. But the way that Luther explains the, what he calls the conclusion to the Ten Commandments, God promises grace and every blessing to all who keep these commandments. You're, you're saying the opposite. And, and what I'm saying is that you can see discernible trends where, where the Ten Commandments are, even if they're not articulated on a regular basis, you know, they don't recite them as a family or something like that. The family pretty much lives according to the Ten Commandments outwardly. And, oh, wow, what grace and blessing they have. It's just amazing. They have stable families, you know, no divorce. The, their income is better because they're not maintaining two homes. Uh, they, they aren't getting arrested uh, by the police for domestic violence or drunk driving. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And those are those probably seem like a lot of people to pretty minor, like pretty minor blessings. But they're huge. The world on this side of eternity does get better because of that. And, and I, we should never dismiss that. That's important because it, it's important to God that, that uh, we transcend our brutishness. You know, and that's the picture kind of going back to Cain again, right? He, he accomplished great things. He built walls because he didn't trust God's protection and providence. Uh, they made music and instruments and all of these things, all these great, pro all this progress. And finally, at the end of the day, it was the farmers, the the, sh the pasture people who didn't have walls and stuff, who were actually experiencing the blessings of being under God's providential care. And and that providential care wasn't just kind of looking up in the sky and thinking, "Oh, God loves me." That was part of it. But they actually lived their, let let God give their life structure, and that guided and carried them through. Well, brothers, it seems that Jesus begins in verse 19 to go on a long discourse that I don't think we should take up now. We probably should stick a fork in it here and leave our listeners uh, with what we've been able to give them thus far. Uh, we will pick it up then at chapter 5, verse 19. <laughs> You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kearns. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.